This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Hosts the bastard sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. And I am Soren Rearguard. We're joined once more in absentia, intravenously, by our third host and executive <laughs> producer, Friedrich Peachy. He really wanted to be here tonight. Unfortunately, he is off currently engaged in a new philanthropic pursuit. He's been testing out a new thing where he buys ride shares for unemployed people so they can get to job interviews and get jobs. He's really pleased with it so far. He's hoping that one day he can become, in fact, the Uber mensch. Hopefully he will be joining us sometime in the near future. Those are horse Ubers. They're flogged all the way too. So he, he's not going to turn in a profit <laughs> on that one. We're back uh, <laughs> talking about the brothers Karamazov again. But first, a little bit of pod business. First of all, thank you to everyone who has listened so far. We're very pleased with just how many of you have tuned in to our first episode, put up with us talking uh, at least for a little bit, get the numbers up there. Just a reminder, you can reach us on Twitter at, at the readers K. You can email us uh, the readers Karamazov at gmail.com. Most importantly, though, you can subscribe to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the readers Karamazov. And folks, you're going to want to do this because let me tell you, we have something very special coming down the pipeline. This episode covers section two of the Brothers Karamazov. If you remember from last week, we told you that in the middle of this is the most famous section of the Brothers Karamazov. It's called the Grand Inquisitor, a scene where Ivan and Alyosha are talking and they, they talk about the existence of God. They talk about human freedom, the problem with evil. It's really wonderful, rich stuff. It's like biting into a decadent, moist cake of philosophy. <laughs> and because of that, we are going to release a sub pod on that section and the section that comes right before it called Rebellion only for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want the good stuff, that's right. You've got to pay through the nose. Go subscribe to our Patreon. Check that out. And we it will change your life. You We're going to have some more goodies coming up very soon, uh, including a, sort of a, an alternate running cast that we're going to call the Watchers Karamazov, where we watch movies and talk about those and, and think about philosophy. And those will be also only available to Patreon subscribers. So we try to make it worth your while to give a, th throw a few kopecks into the, <laughs> the bushel for us. Throw them down. Throw them down. <laughs> in disdain. Yes. Um, throw them down in disdain, uh, which we'll talk about today as well. We're going to start, as we always do, with a little bit of plot summary of what goes on in section two, part two of the Brothers Karamazov. Carl, do you want to tell us a little bit about what happens in that in this section? So this is book four called Strains. 
And in it, we sort of follow Alyosha through a few different important events. Uh, the first, he sort of stops by and talks to his father, Fyodor, and we get an interesting exchange between them where his father describes his, his philosophy to remain in his wickedness to the very end of his days. Though he attempts to console his father, Alyosha moves on and out, outside he meets some schoolboys and one of them sort of takes notice to Alyosha and there's something strange going on between this one young boy and the rest of them. And yeah, he's sort throwing, of throwing rocks at each other. They're throwing rocks at each other. And surprisingly, this young boy refuses to back down when he's ganged up upon. And Alyosha kind of sticks up for him. But even though he sticks up for him, this boy named Ilyusha, he bites Alyosha's finger to the bone and it starts to bleed profusely. But because he's a very nonviolent, passive, uh, loving monk, Alyosha refuses to retaliate against this young boy, even though he throws a rock right at his face and barely misses him. He takes note of this and he reminds himself that this is something he has to go back and figure out. And he does that pretty quickly because he, he ends up meeting with Katerina, the um, fiance of Dimitri, his brother, and also the desired fiance of his other brother Ivan who wants to marry her even because Dimitri is terrible but she wants to marry Dimitri so he meets up with her and she tells him oh well that's the boy that Dimitri's beat up his father basically or humiliated his father in the street so why don't you take some money and go go to this father and pay give him this money so we can make peace for this because Dimitri like he always does messes messed up and and was really mean to this guy so we need to make things right and so, so, he when goes the, there. so when the little boy heard that it was a Karamazov, this is why he attacked Alyosha. Yes, yes. So we have the solution to the mystery, right? Any brother will do. Any brother will do. So, so Alyosha goes back to, or he goes, goes to the boy's father. He tries to give him this money, and then something very strange happens at that point. Things seem to be going well. The father is very grateful for the money. It's a very, they're a very poor family. They've got a sickly daughter uh, or a sickly mother as well. And, um, and a disobedient boy. But at, the, at the, the critical moment where he gives him the money, the father responds very strangely. He throws that money down as if it were to a Patreon account. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he says, you take your stinking money and you make some more podcasts for us. Yeah, he refuses the, he refuses the money. So Yosha picks it back up, keeps it with him. And then, and then we get into um, book, book five, Pro and Contra, which is a very, um, again, a very philosophical section. And we're going to talk more about this in our Patreon episode. This is the section where Alyosha is going all around town. He's supposed to be looking for Dimitri because he's supposed to talk to Dimitri. That's what, what uh, Father Jojima had told him. Go find your, your eldest brother. Try to keep him out of trouble. Instead, he meets up with Ivan, who he thinks is with Dimitri. Turns out it's just Ivan. And they have this conversation in a restaurant. And that's the foundation of the two chapters, Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor. After that, he leaves, and he then he eventually he makes his way back to the monastery where Father Jojima is dying. And then book six is all about basically all about Father Jojima. You want to just tell us really quickly what goes on in that in that book? So we get from the life of the hieromonk and elder Jojima, departed in God, composed from his own words by Alexei Fyodorovich Karamazov. And so this is 
Alexi's retelling or compilation of the sort of full biography of Father Josima. And it somewhat parallels what happens with Alyosha and the young boy Alyosha, who we should remember is, is in extreme poverty. So when his father throws down the money in a sort of confused, almost wild ecstasy, it says in the novel, this is extremely difficult for him to do because he's extremely poor. It's not nothing. It's a whole different li livelihood that would have been available to him if he took the money. And so we get this life of Joshima, and it begins with a tale of his brother, who was older than him and a free thinker. So this parallels a bit the relationship between Alyosha and Ivan. And before he made his way in the world, it was understood that his older brother was sick and was going to die. And he has this sort of about face or turn to God in this sort of moments is sickness where the realization is upon him. He's going to die very soon. And he comes to this realization that life is paradise. We are all in paradise, but we do not want to know it. And if we did want to know it tomorrow, there would be paradise the world over. And this revelation or this change in his brother sort of shocks the young Joshima to his core and it alters the, the course of his life. And then we get we get a little bit more. Um, he joins the army. Jojima joins the army, and eventually he gets into a duel, uh, and then has a sort of revelation, refuses to fight the duel, and decides to become a monk. Then as he's preparing to do that, he's just sort of chilling in town. He's quit the army, but he hasn't joined the monastery yet. He gets a new friend, and this friend comes to him every day and starts talking to him, and wants to hear about him, but doesn't really want to talk about himself. And eventually, they get to the point where this man confesses to him that he had killed a woman about 15 years before a woman that he had been in love with who didn't love him was going to marry somebody else he broke in killed her and blamed it managed to pin it on the servants her servants and so he was never accused never found and now he's got a new life he's got a new wife and children but this has been eating at him for years and years and jojima finally convinces him that he has to confess and so he goes it's his birthday what a birthday gift he goes out and confesses to everybody in town what he's done. And, and the murderer had already been assumed to be someone else who was caught and tried and then died. Yes. And so, so the, there's no reason for him to do this whatsoever. He's is, not sparing anybody's life exactly. or anything like that. He just is burned away by guilt until he confesses. And what's great about this is in this sort of strange twist is that nobody wants to believe him. They all think he's gone mad, and he in fact does die so very soon after this. And then everybody gets mad at, at Jojima and says, "What do you? What did you do? Why did you make this guy feel bad about himself?" And this is also part of what um, Jojima's brother had told him before he died too, which is that each man must be guilty before all others. And he takes this as a reason why he should not finish the duel or not fire at his opponent during the duel. And this plays out for him in this murderer who confesses to him. And that's part of the reason why he thinks the murderer should confess. We're going to come back and talk about Father Jojima quite a bit in a little bit, because it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating part of the book. Not least of which, because we get this essentially an example here to get, to get literary for a moment before we get philosophical. We have this interpolated text into the book, right? We talked last week about how Dostoevsky loves to use multiple voices, right? We talked about Bakhtin's sense of Dostoevsky's 
dialogic sensibilities as, as a novelist. And here we get that very literally because we move away from the narrative voice entirely and we get what we get are Alyosha's recordings of Jojima's almost ecstatic rantings as he's the last day on earth, he's dying. He's about to, to, to kick the bucket. And, and these are the things he's talking about and thinking about as he's about to die. And so we get this, it's almost like a last will and testament or something like that as he's preparing to leave the earth. So it's a really fascinating insertion into the text that deviates from the narrative voice that we've had previously. Pretty interesting on that one. What, what do you want to talk about from this book? Uh, we can talk about anything you want, except for the Grand Inquisitor. We cannot talk about this. I think we should start with the altercation between Alyosha and Ilyusha and what happens in the Grand Inquisitor. And just a theme that runs throughout this book is children and child care, how to care for children. And we should remember, you know, this is a time before the norm was that children go to school and don't work or don't work long hours in factories. This is before, you know, a standardized 40-hour work week or anything, even in Western countries. So and Russia is, at this point, Russia is quite a bit behind the West, lagging behind right. in terms of their sta the standards that they have in terms of not letting children get eaten up by machines or things like that. And so ideas about like poverty and child abuse are at play throughout this book and they press on Ivan, certainly. But later we get this idea that there are really three things that human life continually circles back to. Miracle, mystery, and authority. And the words used to describe this problem with Ilyusha are it's a mystery to Alyosha. And it's a mystery why this child would bite his finger and lash out at him when he came to his defense. And we learned that it involves him being a Karamazov and the stigma that Dmitri brought on Ilyusha's father, where they call him Whisk Broom, you know, the, that horrible... <laughs> Horrible name calling. Sick burn. Sick <laughs> burn. It's, uh, his, his beard is quite voluminous, right? And he gets pulled by it. But I think it's like a, it's a class-based slur or slander towards, <laughs> towards him, right? You're just a whisk broom. Your job is to clean up after us, right? <laughs> and that, that's another important theme that's brought up in this instance, too. One of the most cruel things that people do is make poor people ashamed of their poverty. And... This is kind of all adds up to the mystery of this child. It's important to just pause over that and note how that will link up later to important themes in the third and fourth parts of this book. That's a really good one. Can we, I, I'm going to take us on a slight detour and talk about an author that I know you hate. What that makes me think about this sort of unexplained behavior reminds me of this really wonderful Flannery O'Connor short story called Revelation um, in which this very proper white Southern woman is sitting in a doctor's office and she's kind of thinking about how great she is. And all of a sudden this, this like younger woman just starts ruthlessly attacking her and insulting her and calling her a, a warthog, an old warthog. And it gets really almost like very violent towards her. And this just totally shakes her up and she doesn't know what to do with it. And she goes back home and she tries to sort of justify her own life to herself. And at the very end of the story, in a very strange sort of twist, she sees this mystical vision of people kind of walking 
across the sky as it were into heaven and she sees all of the bad people that she hates like all the poor white people and all the the southern black people that she hates because she's a sort of a terrible racist she sees all those people going into heaven before her and she's like what do i make of this it's so strange and so i like this idea that there's a sense in which sort of these actions of violence might bring about a deeper awareness of mystery in, in life because for alyosha he can't figure out why in the world this kid is attacking him when he's been trying to defend him from you know getting rocks thrown at him so it's a motivating factor for him he i think more than anybody else in the book is attuned to that sense of mystery and is interested in not necessarily solving every mystery but entering into those mysteries that author's oeuvre notwithstanding that that story is somewhat interesting for sure more than solving the mystery there's what makes alyosha such a karamazov is his inability to stand by and the passage right before this links that with his his father's ideas that he's going to live out his baseness to the end of his days live as long as possible and always be cavorting and drinking and as sensual as he can abc always be cavorting <laughs> but there's this passage um, where he's contemplating this mystery and alyosha says or is it's it's said about him one could get completely lost in this tangle and alyosha's heart could not bear uncertainty for the nature of his love was always active. He could not love passively. Once he loved, he immediately also began to help. This compulsion to help without a sense of how to do that well, <laughs> or if you're harming somebody, is an interesting kind of mirror image of what his father is. It's a nice way that Dostoevsky pushes this idea that mysteries aren't just out there, or they're not just things that need to be solved. We, we're compelled to participate in helping something get better, helping this child in his suffering. And we're going to see that after this point, Alyosha continues to have a very strong interest in Ilyushka's well-being. He, he kind of keeps coming back, even though he's not necessarily welcome in the family. I like what you said there, especially because we had talked last week about how Alyosha, even though he's sort of putatively the hero of this book or the protagonist, main protagonist of this book, is very far from being a perfect person. He's a, mon he's a monk in training, right? Wants to be a monk. And is very holy, especially compared to his brothers and father. But he's, he's definitely not a perfect hero. And we see that here. That's a really great passage you brought up about him. As soon as he loves, he has to go help. But that leads him to a bad place in this book because he ends up really insulting the whole family uh, that he's trying to help right because he he rushes in instead of instead of just trying to figure out what they need to, to actually help them he rushes in and tries to be really to be extra helpful to bring up a perhaps better i would argue a lot better american author dostoevsky here is satirizing the project of christian charity which is definitely a theme of a lot of books of herman melville or certainly short stories as well. And, you know, you could go with Bartleby or you could go with Billy Bud, but quick, thoughtless actions towards charity are often self-defeating is something that both novelists are interested in exploring. And so how do you carefully think out a project of charity so that it advances good? You see this a lot, sort of to bring this to the contemporary moment, you, since you're speaking specifically of Christian charity, there's a whole subculture of 
going on these short-term like missions trips where you go overseas and you build a house or something and you smile with the little orphan kids and take, take a picture with them and you come back and you talk about what an impactful experience it was for you to see people who were in poverty. Meanwhile, those people are just sort of there still, right? They're, li they're living their lives for the other 51 weeks of the year. The people who do this are very well-meaning people and they, they want to go make a difference. They're driven by that desire to make a difference. But there's a lot of, it's very ripe for satire this idea that you're going to go in and solve these problems without really having thought about it first and really figured out what it is that people need there. Yeah, that's the that's the great sort of pessimism of Dostoevsky. He's imagining someone doing that. And then these poor people, in quotes, are so impressed by you that they start throwing rocks at you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're so thankful that they're throwing rocks at you as perhaps they should, you know, is, is Dostoevsky's point. And then what happens if you still are well-meaning? Can you take that bit of shame or that knock to your self-worth? That's, that's where Dostoevsky's interested in going. Yeah. And to, to Alyosha's credit, he certainly is. He's not going to give up after an initial failure and he wants to continue to think about that and, and then maybe be a little bit less impulsive about that generosity, but to think about what actually needs to happen. And that's one of the subplots that's going to play out over the course of the book is the way that he begins to love this family in some more real and permanent ways. And he, he thinks through his, his actions with his love interest, Lise, and they have a sort of interesting conversation about what was right and what was wrong in his actions in the encounter and what were the motivations of the father who threw down the money, threw down that money. He didn't make it rain, he made it salt. See Salt Bay? <laughs> Salty throwdown. Alyosha gets rejected by Ilyushka's father and then he continues on his quest to find Dmitri. As he does this, he runs across Smirjakov, the wonderful chef and very taciturn fellow who helps out his father and is probably his father's illegitimate son, we've been given to believe. What happens in that chapter, and what's what did you find? You, you found that very in a very interesting uh, section. Well, it's, it's interesting because Dostoevsky is so interested in baseness, spite, and contrarian views and contrarian people, often in a, their most positive light or their most positive potential outcomes or futures. Smirnikov seems like the one who cannot be returned into the fold in any way. And his views get a little bit more extreme. I hate all of Russia. I wish on the contrary for the abolition of all soldiers. Everything is just a stupid mess of depravity. Our swine stinks in his poverty and sees nothing wrong with it. This is his extremely dour look at humanity. Almost to the point of, we could say moral nihilism, anti-natalism, certainly misanthropy. Yeah, he, say, he literally says, I'd have let them kill me in the womb so as not to come out into the world at all. Those are very dark words. And because he's an important character and potentially a brother, it's also interesting sort of allegorically, is he a Karamazov? And the plot level becomes an interesting question beyond the plot level. Is he part of this potentially redemptive baseness that Dostoevsky is interested in portraying as sort of essential quality of humanity? Do you, at this point, do you see any sort of redemption in him? 
I see the baseness. The baseness is very easy to see, obvious, and it's very obvious. And he he almost is playing that up. It's just interesting because the plot question becomes quite important for how you interpret the book. If these three brothers are part of one whole, but Smerdyakov is also part of it, then we ought to mourn his faults and celebrate any potential successes that he has. But if he is not, if he is sort of morally illegitimate, as well as, you know, an illegitimate child in that old phrase, then there's something in him that must be rejected from this sort of ur-human family. It's important to to wonder how, you know, deep this pessimism is. And then we also get him as a sort of almost comic go-between with respect to Theodor and Dimitri. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, he's, so he's, he's essentially like playing both sides, right? At least at first. And then he, he ends up, he gets very mad at Dimitri. He doesn't seem to want to be doing those things. But what's fascinating about, about that is he's everybody's lackey. Everybody treats him like a lackey, right? Fyodor treats him like garbage and, and only wants him to make his food. But because of that, he's been given access to everybody's lives and he sees a lot and he, he sees and stores up a lot. And that's where part of what makes him such a fascinating and really dangerous character to the other characters is that he knows all of their secrets. And, and again, this kind of goes back to your you, you, the point you brought up before. A running theme in this book is how do you treat the people who are underneath you socially? And he has always been treated like he is underneath them socially. It's not even that they treat him badly. It's they, like they treat him like he's not there. And so they think they can say anything they want to while he's around. He's basically just a piece of furniture. It doesn't matter what they say. And so because of that, he's got all this big store of information. And then like Grigory, the other servant, who really is just kind of like a, a lampstand or something, right? Who doesn't really have any personality whatsoever, Smirnikov is able to take these things and use them to his advantage. And so he's actually kind of interestingly like Fyodor. If Fyodor is his, his father, there's a family resemblance there because Fyodor is always wheeling and dealing. He's kind of like a junkyard owner or something, right? He's always wanting to take little things and spin them into bigger things. He's always trying to get parcels of land and do all these deals with everybody, right? He's a deal maker like our dear president. Smirnikov's like that as well, right? He's trying to Squirrel away these bits of information and use them to his advantage. So he's willing to be a go-between, but he also knows that at some point the bill is going to come due and he's going to take advantage of that and do what he wants to do there. And as this go-between, he sort of talks to Ivan and seeds different ideas about how this sort of love triangle will play out. And he doesn't think it's going to end well. He thinks Theodore will potentially be destroyed by Dimitri, to which Ivan who's no stranger to dour ideas and pessimistic thinking. It's like nonsense. Dimitri won't come to steal money and kill his father. He might have killed him yesterday like a wild, angry fool, but he won't go and steal. Everywhere there are these like very subtle lines about what pushes people over a certain edge out of the family, beyond even baseness, from small cruelty to like life-altering violence. It's really extremely, it's extremely fine-tuned in the novel, these slight differences that have such great repercussions for people's individual destinies. I love what he says. So Smirnikov is talking about Dimitri, and this is what he says about him. This is really great. 
Dmitry Fedorovich is worse than any lackey in his behavior and in his intelligence and in his poverty, miss. He's talking to a, to a girl at this point. And he's not fit for anything. But on the contrary, he gets honor from everybody. I may be only a broth maker, but if I'm lucky, I can open a cafe restaurant in Moscow on the Petrovka. Dmitry Fyodorovich is a ragamuffin, but if he were to challenge the biggest count's son to a duel, he would accept. And how is he any better than me? Because he's a lot stupider than me. He's very aware of the situation. He's aware that Dmitry is this absolute buffoon and kind of idiot, but because of his situation in life, because he's the oldest son of a relatively prosperous man, and because he has some sense of honor and duty, that he's always going to be well-respected where Smirnikov will not be. And that's why he's, he seems, he at least claims that he wants to start this new life. Essentially, he's longing for a meritocracy. He can go to Moscow and become a famous chef because nobody can cook like he can cook. Whereas he's stuck in this very provincial town where it doesn't matter how good he is, he's always just going to be a broth maker. And it doesn't matter how stupid Dimitri is, he's always going to be a man with honor. So he's very aware. And I think you're right. I, I think the book is very concerned with what puts people over that edge and what puts them on that edge. And Smirnikov here strikes me as somebody who's very on the edge. The passage you read reminds me a bit of like the Julian Assange case where one person's hero, one person's out there unforgivable person, or even like the Snowden debacle. Is there something that goes beyond even the normal sense of calling out for justice in these acts? From you know Dostoevsky's perspective, that's like where the line is, and society kind of bends in two totally divergent paths depending on where you stand, for or against. Should we move on and talk about Father Jojima a little bit? Again, we don't want to do too much to align Jojima with Dostoevsky, but there certainly seems to be a lot of very productive ideas here about the way that the world works, about the how to solve maybe the problem of evil, or at least live with the problem of evil. I won't say solve, but live with the problem of evil. And to think about how to deal with your fellow humans in this final section as, as Father Jojima is dying, Alyosha's there with him recording his last words. And we kind of learn a lot about how Dostoevsky wants to go about reconciling the existence of a good, loving God and the, the reality of evil in the world. I think something that makes this novel almost unique as far as anything I've read is a sort of definition of paradise that plays out. And this idea that do not weep, life is paradise. This is the true revelation. And it's perhaps a certain kind of soteriology, a sense of what it is to be saved or find salvation in one's existence. You know, I think of this, this show that people have probably heard of or seen something about, The Good Place. And the whole like premise of the show is that like it's almost impossible to imagine a meaningful existence in a good place or heaven or paradise or an afterlife where everything is kind of permitted to you. That's another key phrase from this part of the book too, right? Everything is permitted. When is it or isn't it? But the, the show I found was really unsatisfactory in terms of what a paradise would be or look like. And every time you get like a positive utopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, people tend not to enjoy reading it, right? Because it's like, and then I got my favorite food and then I got my favorite drink and then I saw my favorite person and then I went to sleep. But I think Dostoevsky's definition um, really plays out in the book. And 
you can point it against uh, one of his most famous short stories, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man, which is an attempt at a utopia without the E, speculative idea of a perfect future. And when you play that against this, you see that he's really trying to make a point about how we need all of this stuff. We need this baseness and we need certain moral reckoning with the world and with ourselves to get happiness in a paradise. That's so rare that a book makes such a dark plea for paradise. There seems to be a sense in which Jojima believes that everything is connected and dependent on everything else. And it's not quite a, it isn't a universalist position because he he does talk about hell as being the absence of the ability to love. It is, a, it is a universalist position in the sense that he thinks that everything in the world depends on everything else. And so you should always be praying for other people like that you don't even know around the world. You should be thanking God for creation at all times, right? And that in some sense, each person is responsible for the sins of the world, <laughs> which is a very startling idea to come across. Yeah, he's saying, you know, paradise is not perfection, a moment of all-knowingness. It's a responsibility for the sins of all, the realization that, quote, much on earth is concealed from us. But in place of it, we have been granted a secret, mysterious sense of our living bond with the other world, with the higher heavenly world, and the roots of our thoughts and feelings are not here, but in other worlds. That is why philosophers say it is impossible on earth to conceive the essence of things. Paradise involves an impossibility of knowing. There's a point at which Jojima is talking about his brother just before he dies, and he has this sort of mystical vision, and he's seeing how everything is connected. And he says this, it's almost like St. Francis. Birds of God, joyful birds, you too must forgive me because I have also sinned before you. And Jojima says, none of us could understand it then, but he was weeping with joy. Yes, he said, there was so much of God's glory around me, birds, trees, meadows, sky, and I alone lived in shame. I alone dishonored everything and did not notice the beauty and glory of it all. You take too many sins upon yourself, mother used to weep. Dear mother, my joy, I am weeping from gladness, not from grief. I want to be guilty before them, only I cannot explain it to you, for I do not even know how to love them. Let me be sinful before everyone but so that everyone will forgive me. And that is paradise. Am I not in paradise now? This sort of odd and unique soteriology is really is a really powerful, unique aspect of Dostoevsky. We also get this phrase, the righteous man departs, but his light remains. People are always saved after the death of him who saved them. The generation of men does not welcome its prophets and kills them. But men love their martyrs and venerate those they have tortured to death. Your work is for the whole. Your deed is for the future. To be saved is requires you to not know that you are mm. saved or in paradise, which gets to that question you just read. And this is why the goal in this paradisical state is prayer is education, uh, which is this great line that he plays yeah. out. Your goal is to remain in a prayerful state that requires you to continually 
be educating yourself so, and those so around you. To go back just for a second to this part that I just read, he says that I alone, Zosham's brother says, I alone dishonored everything and did not notice the beauty and glory of it all. That seems to be the sin, right? Is the it, it's not just not knowing, but it's this sort of willful unknowing. And to pray is to be educated into that world. It made me think about this. I'm getting this secondhand, so I apologize. I don't know where it comes from in um, the thought of Simone Wheel. Uh, I'm getting it through W.H. Auden, the poet who who loves Wheel and talks about her quite a bit in his literary criticism. But he talks about an ideal idea from her that he he then sort of plays on in terms of poetry. He talks about prayer as a training of the mind and a training of the attentiveness to be aware of what is around you. And he says that comes from Wheel. And he says that basically poetry can become a form of secularized prayer, a way to get people to pay attention to the world around them, to, to be, have a greater sensitivity to everything that's happening around them, which I've always thought is a very lovely idea. Different maybe than the sort of the silly idea of the way to solve problems is to raise awareness about them, right? Which is kind of easy to make fun of, but this is something different, right? It's, a, it's an awareness of the connection between people and the connection between people and nature and the, the ways in which we maybe depend upon each other that, that we don't recognize. Yeah, and it gets back to this thing we are talking about before of mystery that is sort of essential to this quality of mystery that Dostoevsky thinks is part of what makes life paradise. This revelation that his sort of most dear character takes as his axiom for being in the world. Can I bring up just a couple of biblical echoes here that I think are, are important for understanding some of what's going on? Jojima brings up the book of Job early on in this, and that seems to be a very important book for him. I want to think about the extent to which Jojima forwards a life view that is about moving away from trying to make sense of suffering, which is something that comes up in The Grand Inquisitor, but moves toward a sense that suffering is something that must be embraced and lived with rather than explained or understood. I've been reading this very good new biography of Kierkegaard called Philosopher of the Heart by Claire Carlyle. And in it, she brings up that this is the heart of Kierkegaard's philosophy, that he's trying to move away from trying to explain suffering to emphasizing that everybody must live with suffering. And Jojima certainly seems to forward that idea. And, and that has kind of resonant echoes of Job if we think about it, because in the book of Job, he spends the whole book trying to understand why he's suffering. And then at the end, God comes out of the whirlwind. He says, what up, Job? Guess what? You weren't there when I made the world, so shut your mouth. But then he gives him back everything, right? He gives him back all of the stuff that he lost. He gives him a new family, probably a better family, we can presume, and all these, these new things. And so people tend to hate that about the book of Job. They think, we didn't get an answer to the problem of suffering. This sucks, right? There's no sense of why is this just that Job suffers because God made a bet with Satan. But I think that where the book of Job maybe is pushing, this is just an idea, but certainly I think where Father Jojima wants to push it is to the idea that it is not about understanding the suffering. It is about embracing the suffering and bringing it upon yourself. And really, ideally, what you do, even maybe more ideally than Job, who's kind of suffering for reasons unknown is embracing the suffering of other people and bringing it upon yourself so many uh religions foreground this and just worldviews foreground this problem of suffering and what do we do about it right the grand inquisitor pushes that 
as well. Do you want to talk about Buddhism at all? You're our Buddhism expert oh, here. Yeah, I was going to, so I was going to say, you know, like in Buddhism, Dukkha is suffering. There is suffering, period. There's no getting around it. It's literally everywhere and in everything in a Buddhist worldview. And in a, in a Stoic worldview, you know, you, your primary choice in any situation is to suffer or suffer reflectively in perhaps to achieve a state of ataraxia where you can either allow yourself to suffer or disallow yourself to suffer emotionally. Not, you know, you stand in fire and you don't feel anything, nothing like that. There's something that the Greek Stoic Epictetus says, one of my favorite parts in all of Stoic literature, where he says, you're putting your kid to bed at night. What's the harm when you lean over them saying to yourself, tomorrow, this kid might die. Right. <laughs> I know. Not to the kid. To be clear, I'm not saying, <laughs> say that to the kid. Uh, what he's saying is, right, in your moment of greatest joy, and, and this is one of my great joys as a father, is if the kids have finally shut up, they're going to sleep. They finally look sweet. They don't look like little demons anymore. They look like little angels. They're sitting there in their bed, drifting off to sleep. It's one of the greatest joys you can have as a parent. And Epictetus says, what's the harm in when that happens? You're looking at them and you're so, at your moment of greatest joy. You temper that by saying, tomorrow you might die. This might be the last time we see each other. Jeez, that's that's too bitter of a brew for myself. <laughs> it's, I, it's intense. I a, it's very intense. I have a, Epictetus was also a, a former slave and a, a huge defender of beards. So gotta love that. My favorite Epictetus quote is, I must die, but must I die whining? <laughs> and Stokes too are kind of famous for just taking it on the chin. If situation looks bad, yeah. you're going to die. Well, t today's the day. No use in having anxieties about it. That those kind of extreme examples are meant to sort of sober you to your daily anxieties, right? About yeah. what your friends think about you or something right. you Absolutely. said that was a little bit perhaps shame inducing, right? Yeah. Forget it. Anxiety is not, it's not necessary. Is, is there any sense in Buddhism? Cause I don't get this sense in stoicism, but it seems to be here in Jojima's ideas that you might be able to suffer for others. In Buddhism, there's like the Buddha Bodhisattva distinction. And the Bodhisattva gives up a certain highest level of enlightenment for the sake of compassionate care for others around mm -hmm. them. In a lot of Buddhist traditions, like Jesus is Maitreya, the Buddha, or maybe not Maitreya, but he's amongst the Buddhas mm -hmm. for his Bodhisattva hood. Okay. his ability to save those around him, to care for those around him in a that's sacrificial really, that's way. Fascinating. To connect this back to, to another sort of biblical idea here, I'm really struck thinking about this constant use of the word paradise. It makes me think of two, two things, well, or really one connected thing, which is, of course, my, my mind goes to the moment at the crucifixion where Jesus is hung up between these two thieves. One thief is mocking him. The other says, don't do that. Don't you know, right? This, this man didn't do anything wrong. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's a very, it's an interesting history of biblical interpretation, uh, certainly in the Middle Ages. And I don't know if this is true of orthodoxy. I'm not an, an orthodox expert by any means, but certainly in, in sort of medieval Catholicism, the interpretive tradition suggests that 
the paradise there is not heaven as we you know we would sort of think of it but it is a, a restoration of the garden of eden which is a really interesting concept to pair with jojima's idea that everything is sort of connected in this earth in a thisness here and that restoration of this paradisical state of the garden of eden right where you have perfect harmony between man and nature man and woman right man and fellow man whatever might be in some small sense achievable on earth through a willingness to suffer for others. Yeah, and, and when I brought up that term soteriology too, it's important to know that like it doesn't necessarily require a belief in an afterlife, I think is an important distinction about what you were just saying as well. Um, you can definitely take everything you just said in a sort of highly ecologically minded purview as well. What hath humans wrought on the the garden of Eden that is, you know, nature. As um, Reverend Toller would say, will God forgive us? <laughs> yes, exactly. Those are, those are important links. And, and in the, uh, you know, a lot of Buddhism as well, there's, there's a way to think like a Buddhist or practice like a Buddhist that is purely atheistic, if, if that's your purview, you know, there's no need to think of literal heavens and lands and future lives. You can think of it all sort of materialistically if, if you want. It's important to sort of say that a lot of the ideas here about spirituality in Dostoevsky don't involve, you know, a, just a specific sense of what happens after you die. I definitely agree with that. And even his view of hell, which is, I find super fascinating, kind of ties in with that, right? He says, will there be like flames and torments in hell? Well, maybe, but what I think is probably that they're there to kind of give relief to people because they're the only thing <laughs> that can distract them from the real torture, which is having sort of chosen a life absent of love, right? And it's a very, in some ways, it seems like a very resonantly Augustinian view of hell, right? Augustine said, um, the doors of hell are closed from the inside. It's this idea that, you know, very different from maybe popular conceptions of hell, where it's like, you did some bad things, and now you're going to get tortured. It's more like the state of being where you have deprive yourself of what is good in life and you're you're there in some sense by your own volition because you refuse to accept the good and in this case as Jojima puts it like you've drained yourself of love and the ability to love others and the ability to suffer which and the is ability the, to suffer yeah which is the sort of you know counterintuitive twist that that's really a wonderful irony there <laughs> right well that's i think that's like the that's the sort of beauty of Joshima's like counterintuitive take on what heaven is and what hell is. It's not, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's the road to heaven, actually. The road to hell is is paved is is you refusing to suffer until your inability to embrace suffering overwhelms you and you drown. Really quickly before we we close uh, this episode. I want to think about Jojima in contrast to a character we meet briefly at the very beginning of this section. It's Father Farapont. And Father Farapont is really fascinating. I really like him. He's one of these bizarre, very comic characters that Dostoevsky gives us, but is also there, I think, for a reason, for the reason of contrast, certainly with Jojima. He's this other monk at the monastery. And in fact, he's Jojima's big rival. Everybody wants to know, there's sort of this competition among the other monks between the followers of Jojima and the followers of Farapont. And Farapont's big claim to fame is that he's the most ascetic person in the monastery, right? He, le he leads the simplest life, the most 
the life most drained of pleasure. And he's separated himself basically entirely from anybody else. He lives in this very small hut. Um, people kind of bring him food periodically. He tries to eat as little as possible. And so some monks really find that appealing and they think he's super holy because of that. Whereas Jojima, I mean, he's certainly not living a life, a wild partying life, but he's with other people and he's healing people. He's out in the crowds. And so there's a tension, a fundamental tension between Father Farapont's way of life and Father Jojima's way of life. There's a sense in which Jojima is trying to teach, I think, Alyosha a lesson when he says at the end of part one, you have to leave the monastery, go out into the world. It's a sense of preparation for what might come. If he does end up being a monk, he needs to be prepared to be out in the world and not to be isolated off by himself. I love how clearly monks are important for what Dostoevsky thinks can redeem a sort of inherent value to a human life. But at the same time, we get that monks are worse than all on earth. (laughs) (laughs) This has always been the case, by the way. In the beginning here. But I think that's also counterintuitively part of this road to paradise where you must embrace the fact that failure is the norm. And to pursue a life where you are bound to mostly fail, live in a state of unknowing about your goodness, allows you to refrain from judgment and to seek simple connections with the people around you. And it's weirdly kind of like an anti-capitalist stance as well material pleasures are there or not there they're not worth pursuing to the hilt nor are they worth denying yeah in every way it it falls somewhere in between Farapont, who's a complete uh, i've got this part pulled up and it's just wonderful right he ate it was said and in fact it was true only two pounds of bread in three days not more it was brought to him every three days by the beekeeper right so he's living there in his complete complete state of isolation it says he he rarely appeared at a liturgy at the, the saying of the the mass Visiting admirers sometimes saw him spend the whole day in prayer without rising from his knees or turning around. Even if he occasionally got into conversation with them, he was brief, curt, strange, and almost always rude. And so it's this wonderful image of somebody who's completely shut themselves off from the the material things of the world. And you have that in contrast, I think, most strongly to Fyodor Karamazov, who's very much invested in the things of the world. And this wonderful passage you brought up, right? He says, I'm going to just keep partying till I die. (laughs) And... I love what you just said. Jojima recognizes, and I think Dostoevsky agrees, the way forward is neither of those things. Which is which is very in line with Buddhism too. That's like the, the Buddha starts on his path by rejecting the life of riches and the life of extreme asceticism, the middle mm-hmm. path. Yeah, I just wanna I just wanna read this other passage that underscores what you talk about, how Alyosha must go out into the world. And right after it combines this point we're making about this is a life of suffering, but that is really the only life that leads to paradise. Thus I think of you, you will go forth from these walls, but you will sojourn in the world like a monk. You will have many opponents, but your very enemies will love you. Life will bring you many misfortunes, but through them you will be happy, and you will bless life and cause others to bless it, which is the most important thing. Historically speaking, you get this played out over the course of the history of monasticism, right? Even from the very beginning with Benedict when he's writing his rule, he says you got to watch out for like the monks who are roaming around without a home and they're like preying on people sexually and like just living it up. But then even moving forward from that point, you have an interesting sort of tension within the monastic life. You have the people who want to become extreme hermits just go completely away from the world maybe that works for a few people but it it, first of all it just doesn't work for most people because it's so hard 
but even that it does seem like it's maybe not as effectual as, as other methods. And then you have the sort of the opposite extreme where certain monasteries in the middle ages became very rich because they were self-sustaining and they were able to sell goods and things. And so they became very wrapped up in the material goods um, that they possessed. And, and then also even in sometimes in political power through the abbot's influence and things like that. Uh, and so you always have these reform movements that come along and that's where you get a lot of the friar movements where right? the Franciscans certainly and the Dominicans and, and the emphasis there being, we got to do a new way, right? We're not going to leave the world entirely like Father Farapont wants to do, but we're also not going to participate so much in the things of the world that we lose focus on who we are. So we're going to live in the world. I love that, that phrase that you quoted from, about Alyosha, to live in the world like a monk, right? That's what a lot of the certainly the Franciscans are trying to do in the Middle Ages, to have that balance, to not succumb to the extreme cut-offness from the world, but also not to succumb to the extreme pleasures that the world may provide. Yeah, and the history of Buddhism, certainly in America, has that same path. Has been, Richard yeah, Gere? Those failures have been there as well. Excessive hedonistic monasticism, yeah. you know, <laughs> somehow. And also extremely ascetic monasticism. I think in this relationship, you're clearly the ascetic and I'm clearly the hedonist. Uh, <laughs> just going on our body types alone. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know that um, there's a wonderful story about uh, George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton, who were, were good friends, even though they were very different, right? George right, Bernard yeah. Shaw is, is, a, is a sworn atheist and he's very vocal about that in the early 20th century. And G.K. Chesterton is very much the sort of embodiment of orthodoxy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, Shaw's super skinny and Chesterton's so, he's so fat. He's just hugely fat. He's always smoking a big cigar, right? And so they greet each other in the streets. Apparently this is, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. I, I like to believe that this is true. Chesterton would yell out to Shaw. He would say, I see there's a famine in England. And Shaw would yell back to him and I see its cause. <laughs> so that's us, that's, that's, our, that's our approach here. <laughs> I'm causing the famine and, and Carl is living through it. <laughs> well, let's end it for now. I think this is a good place to end. We've, we've talked about a lot of different things that are going on in part two. We haven't talked about the big thing. So one more time, I'm going to say it. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep hawking our wares here. <laughs> but go sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We're going to have a separate patrons only episode where we talk about this middle section, this conversation between Ivan and Alyosha, where Ivan lays out his accusations about the state of the world and the problem of suffering in the world in these chapters, Rebellion and then the Grand Inquisitor, which is the very famous one. So if you're interested in that, you want to learn more about the problem of evil, you want to hear about uh, a little bit more about children's suffering, if that's sort of your bag, um, sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We will have that bonus episode up for patrons only. Anything to add before we go? Just for the plot, at the, at the end of that part, it's important to note that Alyosha is so overtaxed by what he's listened to and what he's thought about and contemplated that he forgets that his whole point in meeting his brother at this tavern was to go meet his other brother right after and figure out what's going on with him because he's so fraught, Dimitri. And so yep. there's like a cliffhanger right there for part three. Yeah, we don't know what we still don't know what's going on with Dimitri. He gets so caught up in that, and then he realizes, oh, I gotta rush back to the monastery. He goes back and joins Zorjama just in time to see him die. But where's Dimitri? Where's Dimitri? And that's what we're gonna come back to next time. Until then, why don't you play us out, cat keyboard? Meow, 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 meow.
questions. 